Turn with me just to begin our time tonight to Psalm 47. Psalm 47. And all of those who think they can sneak in before the preaching will be caught tonight. Psalm 47. I just want to read to you two verses that we will return to in a little bit. This morning we looked extensively at why we must love the preached truth of God, and tonight we're looking at why we must love to sing the truth of God. And our usual practice is to go verse by verse in expositional style of preaching, but we're just kind of taking these two topics and considering them to begin our year, and then we'll get back into a normal preaching schedule. But tonight, why we must love to sing the truth, and I just want to kind of get our thoughts in this direction Kind of moving together from Psalm 47, beginning in verse 6. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. And we'll return to those verses in a little bit. Uh, Some time ago, uh, in our adult Sunday school class, we looked at the theology of the charismatic movement. And I, I want to take a little time to talk about that because that will get us back to singing. It's not my purpose tonight to try to revisit all of that. It's a complicated topic. But suffice to say that the charismatic movement has been the most destructive and satanic atomic bomb to the true church really since the advent of the Roman Catholic religion. It includes the abuse of the weak-minded. It includes the fact that 90% of charismatics believe in the prosperity gospel, that Jesus exists to give you health and wealth. That's not a fringe part of the movement. That is the core belief of the movement. They abuse anything resembling a biblical view of the Holy Spirit. And I think perhaps worst of all, their emphasis on personal prophecy has the impact of making the scriptures secondary. And this is in direct violation of Revelation 22:18 which says not to add to the revelation of God. The revelation is closed, the canon is closed. God started at the beginning and ended at the end. There's no more to add to that. And all of that has hurt and devastated the true church of Jesus Christ. And some would say, they would maybe even protest and say, but there are brothers and sisters, they're just different. They're they're just, you know, just kind of a little bit different. Yes, there are a few believers in the charismatic movement, but please be clear, it is in spite of the theology, not because of the theology. They're saved because the Holy Spirit chose to save them, not because the preached word was faithfully proclaimed. I put it this way, the charismatic movement can trace its history back to the 1960s. We trace our theology back to the apostles. And so there is no historical connection for them. And then some would protest and say, but the charismatic movement has given the church such great music and such great music worship and where we're really feeling the presence of God and sensing his spirit. Haven't they, haven't they really put an emphasis on the Holy Spirit in a way that we need? A group which wholesale abuses the theology of the Holy Spirit is not going to be used by God to demonstrate proper worship. And so... Regarding the great music that has been supposedly given to us, I take extreme issue with that on two fronts, content and purpose. And I want to kind of set up what true singing worship is by looking at what it isn't. The the content, the the famous charismatic music group and record label Hillsong, they're even making movies about them now, 
Um, they lead people deceptively by the millions away from this orthodox theology and into an experiential form of idolatry. Now, let me give you an example of a song that's very famous by the Hillsong band Young and Free. Here's some lyrics. This is no performance, Lord. I pray it's worship. Empty words I can't afford. I'm not chasing feelings. That's, why, that's not why I'm singing. You're the reason for my song. And I only want to sing. If I sing with everything, if I sing for you, my king, I can't imagine why I would do this all for hype because it's all to lift you high. And at that point in the song, the music amps up. It's so loud you can't even hear yourself think. The smoke machine starts, the strobe lights get going, and the crowd starts jumping around crazily along with the band on stage. But what content are they responding to? Now, I could take all day to deconstruct those lyrics, but let me just point out a couple of things. First of all, these lyrics are not distinctly Christian. They're not distinctly Christian. There's nothing that references the gospel, references the cross, references the Trinity, certainly no reference to sin or a judgment. As a matter of fact, except for two words, my king, this could be a love song to your girlfriend. It's no different. The first line is, this is no performance. But in fact, that's exactly what it is. It's a well-rehearsed and well-produced stage act. They say, Lord, I pray it's worship. The song even admits they don't know that it's worship. They don't know whether it is or not. I'm not chasing feelings. Really? That's exactly what's happening, actually. That's all they're chasing. We could take all day on this to, to exegete that song. It's like, it's like the opposite of Bible study. You just find more and more horrible things. The content of so, so many songs sung in these contexts is devoid of biblical truth. And not only devoid of truth, it contains massive error all over the place. And there's a deliberate, you, you noticed when I read those lyrics, there's a deliberate ambiguity to the lyrics. Why? So that it appeals to everybody. It appeals to a wide, wide, wide crowd. There's no reference to sin, to forgiveness, to redemption, to need. The Hillsong song called Wake demonstrates this. Let me see if you can find some glimmer of hope in here. At break of day, in hope we rise. We speak your name. We lift our eyes. Tune our hearts into your beat. Where we walk, there you'll be. With fire in our eyes, our lives alight. Your love untamed, it's blazing out. The streets will glow forever bright. Your glory's breaking through the night. You will never fade away. Your love is here to stay. By my side, in my life, shining through me every day. You wake within me, wake within me. You're in my heart forever. Who's that song really about? It's about me. God is a secondary figure. But there's no distinctive Christian element to this. This could be a junior high love poem that one kid gets in trouble for passing to a girl in class. And the songs that do have some Christian theology, there's just enough truth to fool people into thinking that this is theology. Most often they're man-centered a song called What a Beautiful Name. It speaks of the deity of Christ in verse 1, and we, we praise the Lord for that. But then you get to verse 2, and they sing, You didn't want heaven without us, so Jesus, you brought heaven down. What is that saying? That's absolute heresy. That's saying that God has needs, that heaven wasn't complete, God wasn't complete without mankind. The truth is, is that the atonement of Christ is a, is a display of God's righteousness, God's mercy, God's grace, not a means to solve God's loneliness problem. That's heresy. 
And so the content is corrupt. There's nothing to respond to. But the purpose is also corrupt. What is the purpose of music in the, in the charismatic movement? It is the means to control. That is the purpose. Music is designed to be hypnotic in nature. It's designed to disengage your mind. And music has great power to do that if, if misused. Uh, the charismatic worship band, Jesus Culture, uh, out of Bethel Church in Redding, California, they are specialists at using music to disengage the mind and to bring on a sort of emotional hysteria that's mistaken for worship. And now Jesus culture has made its way into mainstream Christianity. They have songs which repeat themselves for 15 and 20 minutes. And you just sing the same thing over and over and over again. And they're also filled with vague, heretical, man-centered lyrics. Uh, the song Holy Spirit by Kim Walker Smith. There's a line in there, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. First of all, that completely violates John 3. We don't welcome the Holy Spirit. We pray that the Holy Spirit welcomes us. And then she says, come flood this place and fill the atmosphere. What does that even mean? I don't know what it means to be flooded by the Holy Spirit. I can tell you what it means in reality, though. What it means in reality that the group is setting up a psychological expectation that as soon as the music starts, the Holy Spirit is being invited to come and create emotion and experience and tears and whatever self-caused emotional reaction, false speaking in tongues, false prophecies. This is nothing more than group hypnosis that psychologists have understood for a century. That's all it is. And the heinous thing about what they call worship is that the purpose has been completely misrepresented. That worship is now about emptying my mind and engaging pure emotion using powerful tools such as extreme volume, smoke, and lighting effects, long repetition, so that we can achieve an emotional high, and then we call it worship. And worst of all, if you're able to achieve the emotional high, then of course the Holy Spirit must have flooded this place and if the Holy Spirit has come, then of course you must be right with God, right? Ultimately, it becomes Satan's trick to deceive the masses into believing that God has accepted them without repentance, without reference to sin, without reference to judgment. In other words, it's a trick to lead you straight to hell through the doors of a church. It is extremely insidious. And now this conditioned response has, has made its way into mainstream Christianity, where the worship leader starts the music with hype and with shouting and maybe saying, come on, everyone, let's worship. And then the hands shoot up in the air, the swaying starts, the tears start. That's not worship. That's just mass hysteria. That's just a conditioned response. That's all it is. Now, I say all this because the song in worship, which has been so horribly abused, particularly the singing of songs in worship, it's, it's massively important to who we are as Christians. But why do we sing? Why do we worship? If you ask most Christians today, general evangelical church, and I'll even throw in the charismatic church with that for a moment. You ask them, what is the purpose of worship? It is all about me. It is to get me a good feeling. It's for the Holy Spirit to come upon me, which is totally aberrant theology. The Holy Spirit has already come upon you if you're a Christian. What is the true purpose of singing? It doesn't have to do with me, although, as I'm going to show you, there are benefits. 
It is simply to give God glory. And how do we give him glory? You ready for this? By simply proclaiming the truth of scripture in song. That's it. That's how we give him glory. We say, your words are so amazing, I think I'll sing them back to you. That's the purpose. Well, I just want to briefly mention for a few minutes several reasons why we must love to sing the truth of God. And I have emphasis on truth. You don't have to turn to any particular text. I'm going to read them to you as we go. I just want to give you a few reasons, and I won't do as many as I did this morning because I'd rather sing. First reason, singing the truth is modeled by great believers. Singing the truth is modeled by great believers. There are about 300 references to singing to the Lord in the scriptures. I'll just give you a few example, a few examples of these great believers. Moses. Moses and Israel sang to the Lord after the Red Sea victory. Exodus 15.1, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Deborah and Barak. They co-led Israel in the time of the judges. Judges 5, verse 3, Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. And of course, when we think of a singer in Scripture, probably your minds, as mine do, go first to King David, who sang the truth. And we have many, many psalms that reflect this. But I wanted to point out 2 Samuel 22. And this is very interesting because it helps build our theology of singing. 2 Samuel 22 begins, And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And then it ends 50 verses later, For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praises to your name. But what's of interest is what comes in the middle. 49 verses, the reason... David is singing, and all these verses, and he doesn't repeat himself one time, by the way. The reason he's singing could be considered a graduate thesis on theology proper. I mean, the depth of theology in those 49 verses is something that any great theologian would only hope to aspire to. He's saying the truth. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas sang the truth while they were in the prison cell in Philippi. They didn't have smoke machines. They didn't have strobe lights. They didn't have uh, fake Holy Spirit smoke being uh, put out through the ventilation system. They didn't have record labels. All they had was the truth, and they sang these truths. And in fact, speaking of this, Acts 16.25 uses the Greek word humneo to sing a hymn. That's where we get our word, hymn. It's a song which rehearses doctrinal, scriptural truth. So we must love to sing the truth of God because singing is modeled by great believers. I'll give you another reason. Singing the truth is modeled by Christ. Singing the truth is modeled by Christ himself. Matthew 26 and Mark 14 record that at the end of the Passover meal in which Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, they sang a hymn, a scriptural truth. Now, on that particular day, they would have ended the evening singing Psalm 118. Interestingly, before he's being arrested, Jesus singing, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. You can't get more doctrinally accurate than singing the Bible. I I was exhorted in seminary that if you're not sure what to preach, just get up and read the Bible. You probably won't go wrong on that. Same thing for singing. You sing the scriptures, you can't go wrong. 
But it's interesting that that's not the last time in redemptive history that the Bible records Jesus singing. Did you know that? When he returns in power and takes Jerusalem and conquers the world and redeems Israel and gathers all the Gentile believers, all the saints together, Zephaniah 3.17, speaking of Christ, says, Yahweh, your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And I don't have time to do a full exegesis of that verse, but if I did, what the picture you would see is Jesus Christ singing at the top of his lungs, celebrating you and dancing at the same time. It's a phenomenal thought. We spoke this morning about us exalting Christ, exalt with a you that we revel in him. This is him returning and reveling in his people. Singing the truth is modeled by Christ himself. Here's a third reason. We must love to sing because singing the truth is commanded of all believers. It is commanded of all believers. I would say this, that there are more non-Christians singing in churches than Christians are because singing has become the substitute for true salvation. And that bothers me because singing the praises of God is the domain of Christians. God wants nothing. He wants no part of hearing an unbeliever sing his praises. Isaiah calls those good works that are filthy rags. Singing the truth is commanded. Let me make this point as clearly as I can. Psalm 9, verse 11, sing praises to the Lord. This is an imperative in Hebrew. It's a command. Psalm 30, verse 4, sing praises to the Lord. Imperative. Psalm 33, verse 3, sing to him a new song. Imperative. Psalm 47, 6 and 7. This is the one we started with. Sing praises to God. Imperative. Sing praises. Imperative. Sing praises to our king. Imperative. Sing praises. Imperative. For the God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. Imperative. Command, 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 command. Can God be any clearer? And in the Psalms, many, many more. I counted about four dozen more commands to sing. Ephesians 5, 19, connected with the command to be filled with the Spirit in verse 18, and to be filled with the Spirit, there's no mystery to that. Using the, the clear cross-reference of Colossians three sixteen, to be filled with the Spirit simply means to obey the Word of God as those who are empowered by the Spirit. And part of doing that is that we are to be singing and making melody to the Lord. And that cross-reference, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. How? Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. James 5.13 says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. This is not optional. This is not for musical Christians. This is for Christians. It's part of being a believer. It has nothing to do with talent. It has nothing to do with ability. It has everything to do with your standing before God. So we must love to sing the truth of God because it is commanded of all believers. I'll give you a fourth reason. We must love to sing the truth of God because singing the truth embeds the truth in your heart. It embeds the truth in your heart. Let's give you some examples. Psalm fifty-nine, sixteen: I will sing of your strength. 
Psalm 89, 1, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. Psalm 101, verse 1, I will sing of the steadfast love and justice. Psalm 119, 72, my tongue will sing of your word. Psalm 138, 5, sing of the ways of the Lord. In five verses, we have the believer singing about God's strength, love, justice, word, and his ways. We rehearse his truth in song. And listen, singing drives the truth into your heart and it drives it with nails that aren't easily taken out. When you're in distress and in trial, two things help you almost immediately. Your scripture memory and familiar songs. I mean, if you're in desperate need of spiritual strength, which would you prefer? Do you want to sing? And I only want to sing if I sing with everything, if I sing for you, my king. That didn't do anything for you. Or how about this, if you had the choice, a modern hymn by Bob Coughlin called King of Grace. What wisdom once devised the plan where all our sin and pride was placed upon the perfect lamb who suffered, bled, and died. The wisdom of a sovereign God whose greatness will be shown when those who crucified your son rejoice around your throne. And in the chorus says, And oh, the glory of the cross! that you would send your son for us. I gladly count my life as lost, that I might come to know the glory of the glory of the cross. Man, we must love to sing the truth of God because it embeds the truth in your heart. Let me give you a fifth reason. Singing the truth ministers to each other. It ministers to each other. Some of you have told me on occasion, I I just don't feel like I'm qualified to counsel others or to help. I mean, how can I be a help to others? Well, let me show you. Paul commanded us in Ephesians 5.19 to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And I want you to know this. To sing the truth of God, listen carefully, is not just a responsibility we have to God. It's a responsibility we have to one another. You ever been in a worship service? Not here at Grace Bible Church, of course. Have you ever been in a worship service where there's like 300 people there and it sounds like four people are singing? That's discouraging. That makes you wonder if you're even saved. It makes you wonder then if the other 296 people are saved. It's just discouraging. And some will say, well, I just sing privately. That's not the option that is given to us here. Listen, when Paul and Silas were singing hymns in a Philippi jail cell, they weren't just praising the Lord. They were encouraging each other. They needed to sing. They'd been beaten. They're in chains. And so they rehearsed the truth by singing it. And when we sing with gusto the truth of God and when we do it together, we're encouraging. We're uplifting. If I could put it this way, we're counseling. We're soothing. We're consoling each other. Songs of the church are ready-made sermons that we have to sing to one another. By the way, you know what had virtually disappeared from so-called Christian worship before the Reformation? Congregational singing. The Reformation didn't just bring back sound theology and soteriology. It brought back the congregational song. This is why the concert-like atmosphere of music that's so loud that you can't hear each other sing is at cross-purposes with one of the purposes of singing, and that is to hear one another, to hear each other. We love to sing the truth of God because singing the truth ministers to each other. Let me give you one more. This is kind of a, a bonus one. 
Singing the truth connects us to the saints now in heaven. Singing the truth connects us to the saints now in heaven. One church statistician feels that the congregational singing as a whole in evangelicalism, however you want to define that, is, is waning. It's going down. And one of the reasons is that people don't know the songs. They don't know the songs. There is a tendency today to introduce new songs quickly, rarely return back to them, and then certainly never use the older traditional hymns of the church. Well, how about this as an example of how to worship? Revelation chapter 15 pictures believers in heaven singing two songs, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. The song of the Lamb is a song about Jesus composed right there in heaven. In fact, this is a look at the future of heaven. This is a song that's so contemporary it hasn't even been exposed yet. It hasn't been sung yet. Or the song of Moses. The song of Moses is either referring to Exodus 15 or Deuteronomy 32. If we counted back from today, that's a song that's 3,500 years old. Talk about connecting all the saints together. A song that hasn't even been written yet and one that's 3,500 years old. Or listen to the words of the hymn, O Gladsome Light. O Gladsome Light of the Holy Glory of the Immortal Father, Heavenly, Holy, Blessed Jesus Christ, Now that we have come to the setting of the sun and behold the light of evening, we praise God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for it is appropriate at all times to worship thee with voices of praise, O Son of God and giver of life, therefore all the world doth glorify thee. Fabulous words. That is considered probably the oldest complete hymn in Christian history. In the fourth century, This hymn was celebrated by the Christian leader, Basil the Great, as a cherished old, old tradition of the church. In other other words, by the time the fourth century came around, the church had been singing that for 200 years already. This is a hymn that was composed probably a few decades after the death of the last apostle. But for us, listen, if you've been fed the lie that old is bad, then you need to readjust your thinking. Every time you sing, Jesus, lover of my soul, rock of ages, it came upon the midnight clear. Hark the herald angels sing, fairest Lord Jesus, a mighty fortress is our God. You are following in the footsteps of the faithful and the mighty saints of the past. You know why charismatic music couldn't care less about the past? Because theologically, they have no connection to the past. They have no connection to church history. They just popped up out of nowhere. They have no connection to the orthodox faithful believers of the past 20 centuries, but when we sing these great hymns, you're literally singing what Martin Luther sang, what Jonathan Edwards sang, what George Whitfield sang, what Charles Spurgeon sang, what John Wesley sang, what Charles Wesley sang. I mean, what a connection! What a connection! We must love to sing the truth of God because it connects us to the saints now in heaven. So it's not those with a hyped-up false emotion that's conjured that should be the most enthusiastic. Who is it that should be the most enthusiastic? It is those with the knowledge of the living God as revealed in Scripture, understanding that God is one and that God is Trinity and that God has sent His Son to die and to be raised for our justification and for our salvation, that God is the Creator and the Redeemer. In other words, it's we who have been taught the truth who have the most reason to sing the truth. It is simply the way that we return thanks to the Lord, and we do so in a way that benefits us. 
Now, talk about uh, immediate application. We never get to do this. When I preach on marriage, I can't say everybody stop and make things right with your spouse right now. But when we preach on singing, we can sing. So I'm going to pray in a moment, and then we're going to apply this to our hearts right now at this moment with the Grace Bible Church Choir, which is you. So let's pray for a moment. Our Father, the songs of the lost are an abomination to you. And the person who would dare to think he is approaching God without the sacrifice of Christ, to think that he's approaching God because he has an emotional experience, will be the very ones of Matthew 7, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name and perform mighty miracles in your name? They will be the ones who call you Lord. They will be the ones who act as if you're Lord. They will be the ones who do not know you as Lord. And they sang song after song after song. We pray for them, Lord. We know that there there are many who are elect in their midst, and we look forward to you bringing them out. But for us who know you, who know the truth, who have heard the glorious gospel of our salvation, who have heard the amazing truths of of your person, of your attributes, of your glory as revealed in Scripture, in the sermons that we preach and in the Bible reading that we do. Oh, it is our joy to sing those truths back to you and to sing those truths to one another, to embed them deeply into our hearts, to rehearse them, to make them part of who we are, to make the songs of the church that which comes to our mind first in the time of trouble, to make the songs of the church that which lifts our spirits when we are lowest, and to make the songs of the church that which carries us all the way home. Probably in the last moments of our life, most of us won't be able to listen to a sermon, but perhaps we can sing a song and listen to a song. And although I don't know, I suspect that it will be with singing that we are welcomed into heaven. And so it is our joy and it is our delight and it is our duty to sing with gusto and with fervor and with love as our gift back to you. We have nothing that you need and the one thing we can give you is our worship. And we thank you and praise you for the ability to do that through our, our mediator, Jesus Christ, who has opened that door. And it's in his name we pray, amen.